Hey, everyone. Before we dive into this episode, I want to share a few things about the show. Over the last few years, the show has really transformed, and it's kind of taken on more of a journalism flavor. And as a result of this, I've had to release episodes in a more timely fashion when they relate to things that are developing in the world at that time. This is why I've decided to break from the normal season schedule and start releasing episodes whenever appropriate. An added benefit of this is that it will allow me to take breaks when I absolutely need to. While I love doing this work, it's quite mentally and emotionally taxing. So having opportunities to take breaks is going to be very fundamental to keeping this project sustainable. And in terms of the sustainability of this project, we should talk about money and living under capitalism. I want to be very clear that this has never been about making money. In fact, over the three years that I've been working on this podcast, I have been losing money. Currently, I'm making around $100 a month on Patreon to support what has become more than a full-time job, and these funds don't even cover the subscription services needed to record and share these episodes. If any of you are able to sign up on Patreon, even if it's just for a dollar a month, that would really go a long way towards making this work something I can keep doing year after year. And to the folks who are already offering support, Thank you so, so much for helping me devote my time and energy to exposing the horrors of capitalism and the many ways we can begin to dismantle this rotten economic system. What's up, people? I'm Erica, and this is Cocktails and Capitalism, a podcast that pairs crafted beverages with stories distilled from our capitalist hellscape. On Monday, November 13th, a mass action to block Cop City took place in Atlanta, Georgia. Hundreds of protesters marched nearly two miles from Gresham Park to the site of the massive proposed police training facility. The police response to this nonviolent march was ridiculous, as we kind of anticipated. And this is something I'll be discussing today with organizer, writer, and podcaster, Jamie Peck. Jamie is the co-host of Everybody Loves Communism, which is a rad left podcast that you should all go check out. She's the founder and former host of the Antifada podcast. And she also worked with the Majority Report as a producer and contributor, which is fucking cool. (laughs) Jamie is also one of a number of speakers who traveled the country on the Walani Worldwide Mass Action Speaking Tour to gain support for the Block Cop City Mass Action. How are you doing, Jamie? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a little tired. I got back from Atlanta the night before last, but I am feeling somewhat rejuvenated after getting a good night's rest. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, I hope you can keep uh, rejuvenating because I know how much you're pouring into this movement, how much you've been doing and how much you've been traveling. So it's got to be totally draining. But I hope it's also been filling you up to to participate in some of these things, (laughs) motivating you. Yeah, for sure. This is what I want to be doing with my time right now. And I'm definitely a little depressed now that it's over (laughs) and I'm back in my apartment by myself. Oh, yeah, I bet. Oh, God, I never thought about that, the letdown after these big mass events. Uh, That's got to be big. (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, Uh, you know, like we're going to talk about in a second, probably it is far from over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, 
to kick this off, uh, we are drinking once again the Stop Cop City cocktail. So I'm going to pour my soda water into my blueberry shrub uh, with vodka. I'm, I did mine pretty light because we're recording a little early today. But yeah, cheers, everyone. <laughs> that looks very good. It's delicious. Very, very berry flavory. <laughs> I love it. Very fresh. So let's just dive in. Um, I was hoping that you could kind of walk us through the mass action that took place on Monday. What happened? How how did the the march actually go? <laughs> sure. First of all, it's it was a march, but it's also important to uh, distinguish it from a normal march where a small group of organizers might call a march and then whoever shows up, shows up. Uh, this is a group of people that have been training together and spokes counseling together for two days beforehand. So it mm -hmm. was definitely more organized and disciplined than your average march that someone calls. So we started with a rally in Gresham Park, and there were a number of speakers at, at that rally, including Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders and uh, both parents of Tortuguita, um, Hoel mm. and Balkis, and also someone from the Block Cop City Coalition. My comrade Sam Beard gave a really rousing speech uh, talking nice. about what we're doing, why we're doing it, you know, our hopes for the future. And all that jazz got everybody keyed up. So then <laughs> the march left. It was so early, so early in the morning uh, for me <laughs> yeah. anyway. And it was a joyful thing. There were giant puppets. People made all these big, cool puppets. There was a marching band. There was a speaker cart that Sam and I were pushing, uh, blasting like fun Atlanta hip hop music just to get everyone hyped. And the march proceeded for a while down a path towards the forest. Um, unfortunately, when we got to the tunnel that leads into the part of the forest that we were trying to get to, uh, the cops had already barricaded it off with uh, big mm. chunks of concrete and just like a bunch of fucking cops in there. So we took a yeah. turn. We turned to the left. We marched along city streets, you know, public Atlanta streets towards the construction site because there's a few different ways that you can get there mm -hmm. at a certain point i'm not sure exactly how close we were to the construction site but we were definitely getting there the cops decided all right that's enough and uh there was a line of riot cops in full riot gear that uh the front line of the march tried to break through sort of non-violently right because there are certain circumstances where the front lines would be trying to fight their way through. But we decided that wasn't the move that day. So mm -hmm. we really were just trying to push past them in sort of a wedge mm -hmm. formation using uh, using these reinforced banners that we had. But um, the, we were completely outgunned, completely outmatched. Um, the cops just started clobbering people with their riot shields, um, which is, it's funny because they accused us of having violent intentions because we brought protective gear. Um, yeah. And it's like, okay, if anyone can turn a shield into a weapon, it's the cops. Um, mm -hmm. And then they they hit us with some tear gas. They hit us with some pepper spray. At one point, it seemed like they were targeting the press specifically. Mm -hmm. They also targeted medics who were treating people who had just been sprayed in the eyes. Um, Jesus. So, yeah, I caught a little tear gas. Didn't love it. But uh, <laughs> I was able to get my protective gear on pretty quickly. So it wasn't so bad for me. They hit us with flashbang grenades or, you know, they're, they're not supposed to shoot them at people. They, they just like use them to scare you. 
because they are very scary. Like it sounds like yeah, an explosion yeah. is going off right by you. But, you know, yeah. we'd been training. So, you know, it was definitely a little startling, but we knew what to expect. And we all made an effort to not f- just freak out and run. Um, yeah. yeah. They also had a thing called the Beast, which is an oh armored God. assault <laughs> yeah. vehicle. Like that's literally its name. Like that is what they call it. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it does. It just looks like one of those cars that like eats other cars. I don't even know. Uh, <laughs> it's it's wild. Yeah. And they it had looks like it's just going to plow over people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, and they also had some attack dogs ready to go wearing little goggles. Oh, my God. Which yeah. is a very funny dystopian image uh, yeah. as well as I don't know if they ever brought it out, but there were reports uh, on the police scanner of a water cannon, which, you know, those last two things taken together, uh, pretty resonant images for anyone with even a yeah. passing familiarity with the history of the civil rights movement. But yeah. um but we didn't freak out, even though we were ridiculously outgunned. Um, we kind of sort of broke through the front line of the police. But behind that wow. line was like a million more cop cars. <laughs> if you look at the drone oh, footage, because at first I was like, oh, we almost did it. We almost had it. And then I looked at the drone footage. And I'm like, no, just kidding. There were oh, gosh, all the cops wow. in the world. We're waiting on oh. the other side of that line. It, of course. So, yeah. yeah, that wasn't happening. But um, some people kind of ran into the forest. And because that felt like the safest place to go at that point, at which point the cops started shooting tear gas canisters into the forest itself, yeah. which is a major, ha- major hazard if you're thinking about fires and whatnot. But um, yeah, I'm really proud of the way the group handled it. You know, we stuck together. We waited for everybody to come back because that was one of our community agreements. We come together, we leave together. Um, and some of the indigenous activists uh, who were there had sort of a little drum circle while that was happening. Mm. And I found it pretty calming and centering to like, you know, remember what we were doing and that we were all going to be okay. And then we kind of communicated up and down the march that uh, we weren't going to get any further. And we turned around and we marched back to the park and it was nice. It was orderly. It was chill. We were still in good spirits. And then, you know, (laughs) We kind of caught our breath for a little bit and then had some meetings before uh, going our separate ways. So, yeah. Amazing. Do you feel like it was a success? (laughs) There's a lot of ways that you can measure that, I understand. Um, But, yeah, I'm just wondering from your perspective what you think about that. I do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I was a little disappointed that we didn't make it onto the construction site because we had a bunch of saplings that we were going to plant to try and reforest the area and replace Mm. all the trees Mm -hmm. that they cut down. And it was going to be, you know, a pretty bold statement to have that because nobody has gotten that many people together to do a direct action on the construction site ever before. So that would have been pretty exciting. But, you know, we still did manage to shut down construction that day. They did not send Mm -hmm. anybody to work that day and the next day as well. I think maybe the day after that, they uh, started it back up again. But uh, that was important because, you know, the more days that we can delay it, the less likely they will be to be able to just build this thing as fast as they can between now and whenever they allow the referendum to happen. Because it's going to yeah. be a lot harder to, you know, vote against it if they can say, oh, look, we already built it. So you don't get mm. to vote now. Um 
And we got hundreds of people. We got 500 people from all over the country, um, many of whom did not know the core group of organizers before this, uh, some mm-hmm. of whom had not ever done something like this before. Wow. There were a lot of college kids there. There were a lot of very young people. And, oh, um, hell yeah. and it was cool seeing all the people that I recognized from my leg of the tour as well. Um, so we got people together. We, you know, we took risks together. We overcame our fear together. And um, we both broadened and deepened the kind of network that we're really going to need if we want to both continue this fight against Cop City and, you know, other fights as well, because there's no shortage of things that need to be fixed in this day and age. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, I was a little bit worried that because so much attention is going to, and rightly so, to protests around Palestine, I was a little worried that that would completely like, I don't know, take a lot of the steam out of this. But um, do you think that that happened? Or do you think that solidarity with uh, the Palestinian movement was actually a, a strong component of the presence there? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like how many people we would have gotten if there wasn't also a genocide yeah. happening in Gaza. Yeah, but Jesus. Um, I think there was quite a bit of overlap. And uh, I think we, I mean, we tried our best to make connections because there are so many connections between yeah. this struggle and that one. Um, whether you're talking more generally about, uh, you know, settler colonialism, uh, colonial capital, mm-hmm. or specifically, uh, you know, the the Atlanta Police Department and the IDF have an exchange program already called Gilly, yeah. where they're sharing their counterinsurgency tactics, their urban warfare tactics with one another. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was definitely a, an important part of it. And we want to continue to make those connections going forward. Yeah, that's so important. We talked a little bit about the police response already. Um, I did want to like highlight a couple other things that I thought were kind of important. I mean, you did already mention that like they directly tear gassed a group of media and press workers, which is so fucking ridiculous. I think on the police scanners, they're talking about how they were freaking out about people digging holes to plant saplings, which is just completely absurd. Like, oh, these violent, dangerous protesters, they're trying to plant their tiny little trees in the forest. Mm-hmm. Like, Jesus Christ. Well, they also tried to say that those little shovels were weapons that we brought to like hit them with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. Then I, I shared on Instagram a video of a Georgia State police, Georgia State Patrol officer throwing a tear gas canister into the forest where the protesters had dispersed. Um, yeah, again, risking the forest, risking a forest fire and the lives of people in that forest who were regrouping after being tear gassed, you know, and the, the cops even tear gassed themselves, which is another mm-hmm. <laughs> ridiculous thing that I thought would be cool to bring up. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I was wondering if you could like now talk a little bit about the press conference that happened um, and kind of the police narrative about how all of this went down. Yeah. Okay. Two more things real quick before I talk about the press conference. Um, there were almost no arrests, which is cool, mm, uh, mm-hmm. especially considering how many people have been arrested already and hit with really serious charges for participating in this movement. 
Um, there were a few people here and there picked off for like loitering or whatever, but there were very yeah. few. No, I think no arrests at the action itself, which is awesome. Um, although they did arrest a small group of Muscogee people. That is the indigenous tribe that used to live in the Wilani forest and gave it its name, its original name, um, before they were sent along the trail of tears. Um, <sighs> turns yeah. out, turns out that is a live process. And, uh, when they tried to go back and pray at the spot where Tortuguita was murdered, they were arrested by a huge terrifying SWAT team and subjected to several days in the Fulton County jail, which has, was that on the same day? Was that on Monday? That, that was over place? the weekend. I think okay, that was on Saturday. Okay, yeah. Um, and that does connect with what I'm about to talk about too. Um, uh-huh. and, oh, I, I should also mention this was this action happened one week after the mass turn-in of people who are facing RICO charges and domestic terrorism charges. So mm-hmm. I think that sends a really important message, too, that the state repression is not going to work, even though we are massively outgunned in terms of you know physical violence and in terms of the force of the law. Uh, we are not giving up. So that yeah. felt really cool and powerful, too. So in terms of the press conference, this was wild. Oh, wait, hold, hold on. Before I um, before we get into that, I just want to add to what you're saying there. Um, I want to read from The Guardian where they talk about a, a different arrest that did happen on Monday. They say one protester who had come from Arizona to participate in the action had gone to a nearby supermarket with another protester. The activist who uses they them pronouns didn't want The Guardian to use their name. The activists were sitting together in a car watching the live feed of the march when police approached. What are you doing here? Commanding the action from your car? Asked one officer. Police repeatedly accused the activist about inciting crimes of being a terrorist. Officer asked, why do you come to our town to mess things up? And one said, you don't, e- you don't even know what this project is about. There's crime in this town and you need us. Uh, meanwhile, officers eventually told the 39-year-old human resources professional they were free to go until a plainclothes officer came behind them and said they were being arrested for, quote, conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism. Another officer then asked them if they possessed incendiary devices. They were eventually released. But that's the kind of police harassment of people who weren't even there directly in the march, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Insane. No, they're they're fucking mad, dude. These cops are little yeah. crybabies. And uh, <laughs> that's part of why they're building them a giant, shiny city. Because yeah. it's, you know, they need a little morale boost after 2020. They're like, wah, yeah. no one likes us. Uh, young people are wondering if they even should become cops. They're having a huge recruitment <laughs> crisis because people are like, oh, wait, maybe that's not the best way to serve my community. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, cry harder. <laughs> and I love that um, at at the... Some part in the action I read that people were chanting at the cops, quit your job, quit your job, like... Yeah, that's that's a pretty good approach, I think. They're always welcome to do so. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's let's move on to that press conference. Tell me, tell me about it. <laughs> this was crazy, but really cool in the end. So um, yeah, there was a press conference later that evening. I was so 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 tired. It was the longest day ever, but um, I was like, this is this is my time to do a good job making a speech. So, you know, I put on a nice dress. I worked on my speech a little bit and, uh, you know, went to the press conference and I was in the middle of 
giving my speech when uh, a, a commotion erupted across the street. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Because um, everyone started running over there. I was like, okay, I guess, I guess this is over for now. Let's go check it out. <laughs> oh, and shit. what was happening was there was a jail vigil across the street from the jail, from Fulton County Jail. And uh, they were projecting Stop Cop City on the jail in big letters. And the cops had rolled up and they were harassing them and, you know, threatening them. So everyone ran over to help. And, you know, it worked. The cops moved along. But then that sort of morphed into a jail vigil. Like everyone from the press conference joined the jail vigil and it was really it was really intense and really amazing like the people in jail were shouting out to us and we were shouting back at them you know mm. stop cop city fuck the police and <laughs> we were asking them you know what what can we do for you what's going on in there and they were shouting about how they had no hot water they were shouting oh about God. how they had no food and they were hungry so <sighs> you know on the spur of the moment because we had snacks at the press conference so yeah. on the spur of the moment uh, a little group of people like somehow they managed to lower a sack on a rope from the jail <laughs> the inmates did and our comrades put some pizza in the bag for them and you know <laughs> other kinds of food and cigarettes and stuff and they got it got to haul it back up and it was a really beautiful moment where you I know, love the, that. the talk turned into action. So mm -hmm. I was not mad that I did not get to finish my speech because this was more important. Yeah. And it, it, the whole thing was, it was just like one more amazing thing that happened that day. And I, I love that so much. When I heard that, it, it definitely like filled my heart. Um, <laughs> I do feel bad for you, though, that you didn't get to give your speech. W were there any points that you really wanted to make that you want to make now? <laughs> I mean, there were. Uh, I think it's important to note that the cops are lying when they say that we had violent intent. You know, they like they collected some of these little hoes and uh, just took a picture, posted a picture of them like they did a fucking drug bust or something. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. the cops, they're so afraid of nonviolence. They're so mad that a bunch of people have gotten together and are still against Cop City that uh, they're going to react in a violent and hysterical way. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. There's nothing violent about uh, protecting yourself from the violence that you know is probably going to happen to you. Um, that's just mm -hmm. called being smart. But yeah. um, I mean, what what else was I even going to say? I don't know. I feel like I... Uh, I said I said enough of it. I there's like <laughs> no media seems to have survived from this press conference too. I'm like weird looking what? for it if only to show my mom. And uh, <laughs> I, I have see. no idea. So yeah, if anyone has any any cool pics or vids from that, uh, damn, especially of the moment when it turned into a jail vigil, that was hmm. really cool. I also want to add that at that press conference, um, the Atlanta police chief, Darren Shirebaum, I don't know how to say it, but um, he said, individuals became very aggressive. The banners that were being carried to portray a message suddenly were being used against law enforcement that was just there to keep order in the community. <laughs> so contrast that with um, a quote from you in The Guardian where you say, it's absurdly hypocritical of the police. They're claiming we were the violent ones when nonviolence was in the DNA of the action from the beginning. 
trying to say we're violent when we brought protective gear is sort of Orwellian. (laughs) And that's a really good point. Like one of the things that they cited, in addition to these gardening tools that they laid out like a huge drug bust was a respirator that is specifically brought there to protect protesters from the chemical warfare that the police are going to throw at them. So, um, But using that as justification for obviously these people came and they had violent intentions is just fucking insane. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is sort of a good lesson and a good example of how the state and the police are going to define violence however the fuck they want and then use that as justification for their own violence, right? Like it's violence to protect yourself against their violence. I also want to talk about why why a nonviolent mass action, why at this point in the movement, that was the tactic that was chosen here um, and what some of the benefits of that were. Yeah. So I think it's really important to distinguish between tactical nonviolence and ideological nonviolence. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Because we are not ideologically committed to avoiding, uh, you know, fights with the police or property destruction um, Mm -hmm. or anything like that. I mean, we had community agreements that day to not do any violence to any human being and to not burn a bunch of shit down. The only property that might have gotten destroyed if we'd gotten far enough was the fence because it was in our way. Um, yeah. And, you mm-hmm. know, we were going to cross that bridge when we came to it, but uh, yeah. didn't yeah. didn't happen. Um, why nonviolence in this moment? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I think we had come to a place where more people than ever knew about Cop City, more people than ever were opposed to Cop City. Right. There were 120,000 Atlanta residents who signed this petition to get the referendum on the ballot to let people vote on whether or not they actually want this thing built. Um But the number of people doing direct action, the number of people showing up to the forest and to the construction site had gone way, way, way down. So Mm -hmm. every day was pretty much a day of nonviolent, non-action, right? So Mm -hmm. we wanted to get people there again. And there were lots of reasons for that, right? The repression was really bad. Um, In January, they murdered a protester. They murdered Tortuguita and... um, Surprise, surprise. People didn't really want to camp in the forest after that because someone had just been murdered there. Yeah. Um, Except for a brief period in March when we had a huge encampment. I think there's a lot of safety in numbers. I think people felt a lot safer camping under those Mm -hmm. circumstances because there weren't that many people around. Uh, When Tortuguita was murdered, there were actually no witnesses to the murder (laughs) itself. And that's something we want to keep the attention on as well because they're trying to do a cover up. And, you know. Yeah. Sometimes cover-ups work. So we wanted to get mm-hmm. people back there, but they were scared. And they were scared of the of the charges that people were getting. I mean, it was a kind of collective punishment, right? Because the cops couldn't catch any of the black block that actually burned shit down on the construction site. So they <laughs> yeah. just they were mad and they decided they were just going to go to the music festival, which was happening a ways away and start grabbing people and charging them with the most intense alleged crimes that had happened. And Mm -hmm. their only evidence was, oh, this person has mud on their shoes, you know, as if they don't understand how being at a music festival works. Um, (laughs) So Uh we wanted a a way to respond to that. 
like if the cops were going to charge us with fucking terrorism for doing this particular thing on a day when nothing spicier than that occurred, yeah, um, mm-hmm. it would just you know further delegitimize those kinds of charges even further than they already are, right? Because even yeah. mainstream legal yeah. scholars are calling the RICO charges and the terrorism charges an absurd bit of government overreach, you know, to the degree mm-hmm. that we still have civil liberties and live in a liberal democracy for whatever that's worth. Um, yeah, th- that's not going to stand. That's not going to fly. Um, but they don't care because they're trying to scare us. So um, yeah, we wanted a way to respond to that. And we wanted a way, we needed the numbers because the yeah. numbers had gone way, way down for a lot of different reasons and uh, people were scared. And in order to mm-hmm. get the numbers, uh, we needed uh, an action that would be a kosher to talk about to large, <laughs> le- like lots and lots of people that we don't know already, right? Because if mm-hmm. we were planning anything more illegal than that, that would have been a really dumb thing to do yeah. going around yeah, the country. Yeah. And then, you know, we're not saying that... Uh, that the spicy part of the movement is over. It could come back again. But in order to do mm-hmm. spicier things, um, you need numbers and you need people who trust each other. And yeah. I think on some level, this was sort of uh, a training. This was like, we're playing on easy mode right now. And you know, mm-hmm. after that, the networks that we've built, hopefully will endure and we can use these skills to continue this fight in whatever way people see fit, as well as, you know, various fights around the country where most of these people live, although not all of them, right? Because they keep trying to say, oh, this is 100% out of towners. Like, no, there are a number yeah. of core organizers of Black Cop City who are born and raised in Atlanta, but it is also yeah. not a crime to care about what happens somewhere else in the world besides yeah. where you live. You know, uh, I think we should care what happens all over the world. Certainly, the U.S. state lines are not something <laughs> that even should be factored in there. Um, you know, in the words of uh, the great Martin Luther King, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And it's also not just a local issue, right? Because they're going to be training cops from all over the country and even places as far flung as Israel to put down yeah. uh, future uprisings, popular uprisings, and to keep people from getting the world they deserve. Yeah. 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 That's so important to note. Another thing that I wanted to add to what you're saying, this being strategic because of safety in numbers and needing to kind of um, get more people involved again, when it, some of that participation is dwindling. I mean, those are strategic things that the fact that we want to be able to talk about it broadly and widely to people, you know, it had to be nonviolent strategically. That makes a lot of sense showing up in solidarity with all of the folks who have received these ridiculous charges, RICO charges and domestic terrorism charges um, to, to just like shy away from the movement because of that um, would be letting the police win that fight, you know? So to bring a whole bunch of people and show that we aren't going to be deterred by these things, that we're not afraid of these things and we're going to keep going. I think that, you know, it was really important both to show that solidarity with the folks who have already experienced this, but also to show that, no, like we're not going to bow down to these kinds of repressive tactics and just disappear. And then the fact that it just really, really did a good job of highlighting the absurdity of the state's repressive tactics in relation to this movement. Um, yeah, the 
tear gassing their own police officers, the the ridiculous arrest that they made and then let the person go. Um, there's so many aspects here. Throwing the, the tear gas canister into the forest that when faced with a nonviolent group of people, these things are fucking ridiculous, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they showed their asses. And that wasn't <laughs> like the primary goal, but, you know... It's fine that they did that because now we can point at them and show every every rational person what's going on, what's going on with the police. Oh, why are they like this? Oh, why are they so upset? Why are they so threatened by a nonviolent crowd with puppets and, you know, musical instruments and, and drums and whatnot? Like what's, what's Kids going and clergy. on? Yeah. Yeah. And kind of in the same vein, I wanted to talk about the tactics that were used to ensure safety of the people who showed up and participated in this. Can we talk a little bit about like the clothes and other things that people did specifically to help keep each other safe? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think the community agreements, first and foremost, you know, the fact that we all knew what we were getting into. We all had sort of informed consent there because we never wanted to pretend like it was a 100% risk-free action, right? The cops could hypothetically do anything. They can be a little unpredictable. There was a risk of arrest. There was certainly a risk of violence. Um, and the trainings really uh, hammered that home for people, I think. There was actually a bit of a drop-off from the trainings, from the from the two days of trainings and spokes councils to the march itself. There were about 100 people who decided that they would rather do a support role. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's fine. I think it shows yeah. that we did a good job of going over all of the risks. And uh, I mean, I felt it myself. It's one thing to know it in your brain. It's another to be like, all right, and this is happening tomorrow. And here is yeah. a little a little run through, a little mock trial of, uh, you know, what could happen to you when you do this action. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. But like, you know, I think just knowing ahead of time and having some training and having some plans for what to do and what to expect was important in keeping the crowd uh, safer as well as, um, you know, mentally prepared in a good place because mm -hmm. you know a lot of the time when the really bad stuff happens with the police like uh like at the music festival march 5th is when people freak out and they scatter and yeah. it's much easier for the cops to do whatever they want to you when they have you alone so it was really important for everyone to stick together we came together we left together and i think that really helped cut down on the amount of arrests and possibly the violence Right, because the cops did beat a number of people very badly on March 5th, mm. and there were no serious injuries at this march either. So that yeah. felt really good. Um, yeah, we brought protective gear. We knew what to expect. We had some goggles. We had some gas masks. Um, I myself didn't get tear gassed too, too badly because I had some gear that I was able to put on uh, when that was happening. Um, wow, nice. And... You know, we had some good outfits. They um, they painted some jumpsuits to sort of echo the environmentalist movement in Europe, I think, right now. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's always cool. But I, like, I'm not really sure if the outfits kept us safe necessarily, other than to you know look cool, stick together, and uh, sort of make these connections internationally. The anonymity there 
also. I mean, yeah. also with the respirators and goggles, glasses, masks, things like that always helps with that keeping your identity protected. <laughs> yeah, to some degree. Although I must emphasize that we explicitly did not do black block at this thing. There uh, was really mm-hmm. no dress code other than don't wear black block because again, uh it's black block is sort of a it's sort of sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because it does help protect you after the fact if the police are trying to identify you from footage, but it can invite greater violence. and negative attention in the moment. And Mm -hmm. again, we weren't planning to do any serious crimes. So black block would have been totally unnecessary. And the the downsides would have outweighed the upsides, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really a good distinction there. I didn't really think about how this was different from a black block. But yeah, thank you. Also heat resistant gloves, I heard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's important if they're firing tear gas canisters into the crowd to be able to pick them up and toss them where they can't hurt you anymore. I love that. And they also double for gardening. Yay! (laughs) We didn't get to use them for that, but, you know. God damn it. They have more purpose than one. Mm -hmm. What about the reinforced banners and umbrellas? Can you talk about those? Yeah, so that was designed as sort of a, a protective shield. So that when people were walking forward, which was all we were trying to do, is complete this march in that moment, yeah. um, they were they were going to have a little bit of protection from the things that the cops were, you know, trying to hit them with. Um, mm-hmm. I think the reinforced banners could have been reinforced a little better. It was made out of PVC, uh, and you know maybe it could have been more solid, but. But, you know, you have a trade-off there because then you have a banner that weighs 100 pounds and yeah, yeah. takes a bunch of people to carry it. It's a little mm-hmm. a little unwieldy. But, um, yeah, the umbrellas are a protest tactic that was sort of popularized by Hong Kong, the movement there. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. um, it's cool to see the way these things spread all over the world um, to different people totally. who are fighting the cops for perhaps very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I want to highlight these tactics, because I want the successful ones to spread to other liberation struggles. Were there any other tactics that you think were really notable? I mean, I I, I noted the the V-shaped wedge formation, and you, you briefly mentioned that, but I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so that is one tactic if you're trying to nonviolently break through a police line. And, you know, I mean, they're fucking babies about it, but the the most violent thing that's going to happen to them is they just get kind of shoved out of the way by this wedge. I mean, if you think about it, a wedge is a pretty strong shape. If you're trying Mm -hmm. to trying to do that, it's like it's like the it's like the kids game of Red Rover, you know, (laughs) like you're trying to break (laughs) the line, (laughs) like, except it's not just you doing it because we are, uh, (laughs) we're not just playing a game and we are smarter than children. So maybe it's not a good analogy, but uh, (laughs) you know, you're trying to break through a line. You want, um, you want to have your people arranged in the best shape possible to do that. And uh, hopefully protect the people in the lines behind you who maybe Mm -hmm. don't want to have the responsibility of being the first person to make contact with these, uh, 
hyper militarized, roided out police officers. Yeah. 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 It's it's weird to think about like how much it mirrors like strategies and tactics in war times of like what kind of formations do we use when we are confronting an enemy, <laughs> an enemy line? Like how do we break through it? It's the purpose of Cop City is is, you know, intense urban warfare training. So um I think it's only appropriate that we're using these like strategies and things that um, you know, they are getting ready for as well. <laughs> they are preparing for. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. They're not just protecting our First Amendment rights, turns out. <laughs> so they kept fucking saying that. Oh like, my god. Really? Do you hear yourselves? <sighs> Nobody believes you. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, who even like parrots that talking point i don't <laughs> are there any people in atlanta that do Ugh. you know i'm sure there are some fucking bootlickers out there <laughs> who think that that is totally what they're doing but um you know judging from the community response thus far uh especially from the people who live right around the construction site they are certainly in the minority yeah yeah totally where do you expect the movement to go from here? Do you have any thoughts about that that you would be comfortable sharing? Yeah, so that's a great question. That's the million dollar question right now. Um, we had a few meetings, both before and after the action, where we talked a little bit about that and you know, got a chance to sort of huddle in our regional clusters because I knew the Atlanta people better than I knew the New York people at this thing. And it was important to me that I meet people who live where I live as well and want to do organizing projects together because that is where we are most of the time. Um, yeah. I think there's a number of proposals on the table. Nothing's really been decided yet what we're going to focus on. Um, certainly, Palestine solidarity is really important for us to keep pushing um, and pushing the connections yeah. there. And, you know, the fight to stop Cop City is not over yet. Um, the referendum is now supposed to happen in March. But uh, I think more and more people are realizing that um, it might not happen without direct action happening at the same time to support it. Mm. Because, you know, the state is doing this bad faith legal runaround. They're going to throw every trick in the book at it. Um, the South River Watershed Alliance has filed a number of lawsuits that the courts are ignoring um, hmm. and the, I'm, I'm afraid that the referendum is, um, running into similar roadblocks. So we really, we really need to, um, keep the pressure on and let them know that they can't just get out of this just by ignoring, uh, the democratic process because, yeah. uh, to the degree that we still live in a liberal democracy, they're not allowed to do that. But also, um, I think we need some things in addition to that to show them that, uh, they can't just ignore it and expect nothing to happen. You know, stuff, yeah. stuff's going to keep happening. And we hope we really hope that this opens up the space for more people to come in and do similar types types of actions um, on or near the construction site. Because, you know, even a small action like the one we saw um, a little while back when there were five people from mm -hmm. the Faith Coalition to Stop Cop City who locked down on the construction site, um, even a small action like that will shut down all traffic in and out of there for an entire day. So yeah. 
we hope that more people come in and do things like that between now and March, assuming the referendum happens in March, because mm-hmm. like I said, it's going to make it harder for them to build this thing as fast as they can. And they really haven't built that much of it, right? Like their primary victory so far has been cutting down the trees. Uh, like I think at least 80 acres of trees have been cut down mm-hmm. now. And that is sad, but you know what? A lot of that forest is a new growth forest to begin with because it yeah. has been clear cut much of it within relatively recent historical memory. Um, mm-hmm. First it was a plantation and then it was a prison farm. So, yeah. you know, basically the same thing, right? Continuing those threads of racial oppression and class exploitation that American capitalism runs on. Um, yeah. So yeah, we know the trees will come back eventually. It's just a matter of time. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go next, but I know that it's not over. And I'm really excited because, uh, you know, we're in one of those weeks where decades happen that uh, Lennon talked about. And we really need to to scale up our operation if we're going to be able to deal with all the fucked up shit happening in the world. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. And thank you for giving some of your thoughts about like where where this movement is headed. I'm wondering if if there's time for me to just ask you um, a little bit of a broader question about kind of you and uh, the origin of some of your views and like what made you an anti-capitalist? Ooh, that's a great question. I've actually... I actually wrote a book proposal for a book what? that sort of starts to answer that question, although my first round of submissions was not successful. So I'm currently trying to figure out if I need to do another round of subs, uh, include more indies in there, or mm-hmm. like retool it before I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of deferring to what my agent thinks, but uh, I ha- which is all to say I have thought about this a lot. Right. Because I, you know, I grew, I come from a good middle class home and uh, I was not raised with these kinds of politics, certainly. Although, you know, I was raised to stand up for what I believe in and for what I think is right. So um, when, how did this happen? How did I, how did I become this way? Um, (laughs) Well, I graduated college in 2007. So, you know, not the greatest time for a young liberal arts major trying to yeah. make her way in the world. Um, I think mm-hmm. I was like, I was definitely a liberal uh, to the point where I, you know, made phone calls for Barack Obama when I was mm-hmm. in college. He was acting like he might do healthcare. He was acting like he might, you know, pass car check and all these things that I thought were important as a progressive. And he was against the Iraq war, which I thought was really important. Yeah. Um, but then, mm-hmm. you know, I grew pretty disillusioned by the things that happened in the Obama administration as it went on, whether it was bailing out the banks and not the homeowners or, you know, all the, the drones, all the little wars. And he was like, well, yeah. well, these ones are fine, though. Not that one, but these ones are totally cool. Um, and here's mm-hmm. why I had no choice. Um, and just so many things and just experiencing, you know, trying to survive on my own in the world. And how fucking hard that was. And I and like I had it pretty good and it still was hard. So, you know, yeah. imagine yeah. what it is like for most of humanity kind of got me thinking. And then um I got I, I would say I, I really radicalized around the time of Occupy Wall Street when mm. I, I jumped in with both feet and got to do some exciting direct actions around that. 
And uh, I, I kind of <laughs> entered this milieu, this, I mean, people only use this word in scare quotes, but it was like a pretty ultra left milieu at the time hmm. through, you know, they fucked with the coming insurrection and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I, I entered this through my, my boyfriend at the time who is now my ex husband. And, uh, you know, I'll always be thankful that he did that for me. Um, but I was ready. I was also ready. Like that's part of why I wanted to date a communist, I think. Um, <laughs> so I was like, Ooh, that's cool. Tell me more. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I did that for a while. Then I kind of pieced out cause I want to do my own thing and DSA, um, turns out a lot of these male ultra leftists are not always the most welcoming to, uh, <sighs> to a nice young woman who is interested in the things they do. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's the bane of my existence, man. Yeah. I fucking hate it. So, you know, <laughs> so sorry. I peaced out to DSA for a little bit, wanted to do my own thing. Also, like, wanted to see if I could believe in some kind of politics that perhaps posed less of a personal risk to myself if I did them, mm. which democratic socialism objectively is. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm still, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shit on DSA too hard. I think everything, most, most of the things they do are positive. Um, it just, I'm not convinced that it really fits into my polit my political worldview uh, yeah. at this point in time or maybe ever, but you know, the Bernie moment was very <laughs> exciting nonetheless. I mean, I'm not made of yeah. stone. I had to, I had to take a look at that and see where it went. Although I was never like, never put all my eggs in that basket. Cause I was like, there's, yeah. there's no way, there's no fucking way they're going to let this happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> but then what did I do? I, I made it back into this other milieu that, um, like I was really curious about the Atlanta stuff for a while. It's actually my former co-host Andy who talked me into going. Um, oh, cool! I wanted huh. to go sooner than that, but I was fucking broke, so I had to like rearrange my life a little bit in a way that would allow me to prioritize stuff like this. And you know, I went down yeah. initially as a journalist, but also as someone who knew some people involved, and I got to know more people who were involved through the people that I already knew. And, and I was really looking for a new thing to devote my life to for a new, a new project that was really meaningful and important, both, both in terms of the, you know, the immediate implications of a thing like cop city, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, my long-term political goals, my theory of change. So uh -huh. it seemed like this was the thing, like it was a very functional group of people. I was really impressed with uh, how healthy this, not necessarily coalition, but composition was where all these different groups of people really came in and respected each other, whether we're talking about yeah. um, an all black sort of Marxist Leninist group like uh, community movement builders, or mm -hmm. I don't want to say that it's mostly white because uh, it, it's not all white people, but certainly less, certainly fewer black people than uh, CMB uh, this other group of sort of crusty anarchists. Uh, these people were all getting along. And I was like, oh my God, this is really cool. This is really impressive. Yeah. Um, I want to be a part of this. And uh, then from there, I was like, well, the March week of action was one thing. It was exciting. It was stressful. Um, and then the June week of action was, you know, disappointing in some ways. But at another level, it was a great way to get in on the ground floor of something new because it was mm -hmm. very clear that this corner of the movement needed to come up with the next phase, a new, yeah. a new way to get out of this impasse. So um, that was a chance to participate in conversations and 
the start of something new. And, you know, one thing that came out of that was uh, this nonviolent direct action, and we're going to go on tour to support it. And I knew immediately, like, I I didn't want to be like, oh, me, 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 because, you know, I'm like very aware (laughs) of the fact that I'm a podcaster and I always, you know, I talk, I take up space. So I was like, well, maybe somebody else should do it. Maybe one of these more seasoned organizers, maybe someone who lives in Atlanta. But, you know, it turned out that they really had their hands full and they were very happy for someone like me whose skills lie in public (laughs) speaking to come in after, after, you know, going to meetings and having a good familiarity with the plan. Um, Not just talking out my ass about it and, you know, (laughs) talking to people. Because I'm a mm-hmm. pathological extrovert, so you might as well <laughs> use those skills for uh, you know what they can do for you. And then um, I think the the spokesperson role kind of grew out of the tour because uh, mm. my comrade Sam and I did the most tour stops of anyone, and we really took to it as this is the thing that we can contribute to yeah. the movement. So then I've been doing that ever since, and I'm really happy about it. I really like the people. In Atlanta, I feel like I get to know them a little better every time I go down there and, you know, other people from across the country as well. So I I don't know. I feel like on some level, I've been training to do this for the last six years of being a podcaster because for the, well, for the yeah. longest time, I was just like, what is this career I felt Dick first into? I'm not a fucking podcaster. I'm not, I'm not someone <laughs> who talks. I'm a writer. But <laughs> oh, me too. Dude. But you know, anyone who knows me is like, actually, Jamie, you do talk a lot. So, um, turns out, turns out, I can do that too. And now, I feel more confident in it after doing this thing for for six years. So, you know, I, I'm still like not sure what is going on with my own career, but I'm I have I have to believe that this experience will inform whatever I do next and. You know, I think part of why I started ELC was because I had a bit of imposter syndrome and I thought, what if I just read a lot of books? That will Mm -hmm. solve the problem. And, you know, it's good Mm -hmm. to read books, obviously, but I think more than reading a lot of books, what has given me more confidence these days and the confidence to speak on these things and even to start writing about communist politics, because I never did that before, believe it or not, until very recently. Mm it's it's being an organizer and it's being part of a, yeah. a group, being part of a solid crew. I don't feel like I'm on my own out there. I feel like I have the collective wisdom of a functional group of people. And uh, yeah. that feels really cool. And that's something I want to keep on cultivating myself as well as in others, especially the girls. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, they, they want they, they're a little shy. They're a little shy yeah, to, true. to step up and be loud and take up space and have opinions and do things. I love that. I, you know, I'm definitely one of those girls and I, I don't know how I got into fucking podcasting because it's the last thing in the world that I ever thought I would do. I'm so nervous speaking in front of people. Um, yeah, it just gives me so much anxiety. But um, seeing you out there giving these talks um, and doing it with like so much clarity and and calmness and just like poise and like in a way that is really really engaging for people it's not like you're lecturing at people in this dry way you know like i immediately um seeing one of your talks on your speaking tour i was just like this this woman has such a beautiful way of conveying these things um and and 
getting people excited about what's going on. I think you are the perfect person to be spreading the word about this mass action and, you know, being a spokesperson for this movement. Um, really, really, really beautiful and perfect for you. So thank you so much. I, uh, I love that for you <laughs> and for the movement and for the change that it is aiming for, you know? Thanks. That's yeah. really nice to hear. Yeah, totally. I absolutely mean it. Uh, but if you ever want to come back, if you want to like uh, talk about some of the stuff that you've talked about on Everybody Loves Communism, um, you know, if there's ever a topic that you want to dive into about capitalism with me, uh, you're fucking dope. And I would love to do that with you. So Hell yeah. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> awesome. All right, dude. Well, thank you so much. This is really, really, really illuminating. And I appreciate your time so much and all of the efforts that you've been pouring into this movement. So fucking cheers to you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's pretend yeah. there's a cocktail in here. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's just, Clink. you know, we'll we'll have it. We'll have another one when I'm fixed and I can drink again because I'm having some hot girl tummy problems. Oh no! Oh no! But hot I, girl tummy problems. I'm gonna be okay. <laughs> I yeah, I've got a lot of tummy problems, but uh, we do a lot of mocktails. So if in the future you're still having tummy problems, we can just make something that's very tummy friendly. That sounds good. You know, everyone awesome. everyone has an Achilles heel. Oh, For me, it's the yeah. Ashkenazi stomach. Oh, no. But, uh, <laughs> on that note, oh, my God, I always steal my own thunder. This is what I do. We were, we were, I felt like such a bad bitch, and now everyone's thinking about my tummy problems. <laughs> cut this part out. Just cut okay. it out. Okay. <laughs> I love it, though. It's kind of fun. It would be kind of fun to leave in there. Also but, fine. Uh, I, I, I okay. defer to you. <laughs> All right. Fuck yeah. Well, thanks, dude. I This is really, really fun. And I'm also really, really, yeah, informative. So thank you. And hope you have a great Saturday night. Thank you. I plan to. Mm-hmm.